Good morning, Tabernacle. I want to welcome you uh, here in Buckley and uh, those members of our church and those attending in Manistee or watching online. It's a great weekend. You picked a great weekend to be here because we're back in our Second Samuel series. Uh, but before we get in there, I want to uh, make one little announcement. Uh, many of you probably knew this was coming, but this is about the time of year that we remind people that the weekend before Thanksgiving, we will hold our annual Big Give offering. So we have our regular tithes and offerings, so we're commanded to give back to God, to set a portion aside for the furtherance of his ministry. That's why for thousands of years, you bring your tithes and offerings to the church. But it's also a tradition that uh, we also give over and above because God has given over and above to us. Is that not true? God has blessed us. We want to bless back. God has been generous with us. And so typically what I do, and I'm going to do the same thing year after year, is I'm going to ask you to start praying now what God would have you do. If he's blessed you over and above, maybe a portion of that can be used to bless others. And so what we do with the monies that come in from the Big Give offering is a largest portion of that we give away. And that's one of the coolest parts about the Big Give. We've been able to support, uh, to make financial gifts and donations to ministries and missions locally, uh, regionally, and internationally, uh, which is kind of cool to think about a church, one church in multiple locations here in northern Michigan that has been able to bless uh, across the seas. Isn't that cool? So what we don't do, because I thought about it for a half second, you know, uh, I was thinking maybe we should set a goal, you know, maybe we should set a goal for how much we want to raise. And then immediately it was like, nope, we're not going to be that church because <laughs> I got to look myself in the mirror and I never wanted to be the church that we have this big giant thermometer. <laughs> hey, give generously. And then, you know, you can dunk John and get you gumi in the dead of winter. No, not happening. No, we're not going to do that. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit and trust that you'll pray and ask God and whatever comes in is supposed to come in. We had one of the largest big gives we've ever had last year in the middle of the, the, the year of the virus that will not be named, right? And uh, so I was surprised by that. I love setting records, but um, we're just going to trust God for that. So if you'll start praying about that, that would be cool. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13, um, before we jump in, I want to do two things. One, give a little bit of a warning, and second, I want to read a different scripture. And the warning is this that uh, the Bible does not varnish over tough things. It doesn't gloss over the sins of the characters. And so there's parts of the Bible that are rather explicit. And chapter 13 is one of those reminders that if this is the type of thing that you'd really rather not hear about, well, well God knows everything, and he looks into the deepest, darkest places of our hearts and lives, and he knows and secondly, uh, uh, if, if this is something that you kind of wish your child that accompanied you to church today doesn't need to hear right now, I would remind you that we have excellent tab kids programs or cover their ears, but uh, it gets a little graphic. Um, so before we go there, I want to give you the why. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, this is what it says about God's word. It says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. And so just like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that says all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in all righteousness, there's a purpose for all of the stuff that we read, even the graphic stuff. 
And it's first to teach us and second to give us encouragement and hope. So hopefully by the end, that's something that we'll experience uh, today. So 2 Samuel chapter 13, we pick up the saga of David and his monarchy and his family. It says, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat. And prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat it from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother. Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and he lay with her. Now, we need to pause right there and consider... This sordid tale. Let me fill in some gaps. Amnon is the oldest king, or the oldest son of King David. He's the oldest prince, as you were, the oldest brother. He's in line to be king. He's the crown prince. And he's overcome with what the scripture says, love, and what we see is really lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Scripture says about Tamar, she's very beautiful. She's the the full sister of Absalom, who's called the most beautiful man in Israel, right? He's a, he's a handsome man. They both come from the same gene pool. So like brother, like sister. And it says that he was so overcome with lust for her that he was making himself sick about it. And then he has this friend who's really not a friend. It's his cousin, Jonadab, of, uh, the son of Shemaiah. And he kind of sees that there's something wrong with him. He says, why day after day is your face like this? And he goes, because I want my half-sister, Tamar, and I can't do anything. And they hatch this sordid plot, 
pretend to be sick. And then when your father asks you what's going on, ask him to send your sister to your house. You see, David, against God's law, had multiple wives. He's, as Pastor Tim has said, he has a virtual harem. And, and so with these multiple wives, he's got children by different ones. They all have their own home. So that's exactly what Amnon does. He pretends to be ill, and he begs his father to send Tamar to his house. And if you're following the story, you know, there, there's the, I think it's on purpose, the literature. It almost builds like a Hollywood movie, doesn't it? All those details. Why? Why did he give us so many details? Why didn't he just say what happened? What happened was, is Amnon assaulted his half-sister. It was rape. It was incest. Why the details? It's almost as if God wants us to see what happens when we sin. There's a predator. And there's prey. There's a perpetrator. And there's a victim. And we get no indication that Tamar had anything but goodness in her heart to help her brother. Oh, he's sick. Can I help him? And this image of her making the cakes and then him, oh, I'm so sick. And then he sends everyone out. She's a princess. She would have had an attendant. He would have had attendance. He goes, everybody leave, just me and my sister. Bring her in here to my room. Bring it in here. Let me eat it from your hand. And then we find he's not sick and he grabs her and she begs him, don't do this outrageous thing. And if you do this, you're going to be an outrageous fool. She even suggests something sinful, but maybe a little bit less violent towards her. I don't know. Ask dad. Maybe he'll sort it out. But he wouldn't listen. And being stronger than her, he overpowers her and says he violates her. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So a servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And so now we see the devastating effects on Tamar. And on David's family, David, this is your family. It says that, isn't it interesting, in the moment after this repulsive act, he's overcome with hatred. You know, I was thinking about that. Every Christian person, particularly men, 
that have ever struggled with lust. Or for that matter, for any one of us, with any one of our sins. And, and, you know, there's a moment where you indulge in your sin when you just let it go, and then immediately you're covered in shame. That's what Amnon felt. I can't believe I did that. He's, he's, he's repulsed. Get away from me. Get out. It says the hatred for her was more than the lust that he'd had in his heart. And you see the desolation in her. She begs him, please don't do this. Why would she want to stay with him? Because she knows, and especially in that day and time, the shame that is now brought on her. He has stolen her purity. He has stolen her virtue. He has devastated her, right? And now he wants her away, so much so that he orders the door bolted after her. You can only imagine the, the scene. And it says she's dressed as a princess, and her sleeves are torn, and ashes are put on her head. She lays her hand on her head and she goes away, presumably weeping and devastated. And she goes to the home of her brother Absalom. Absalom, I think he knows what Amnon's about. He knows what kind of man his older half-brother is. He picks up on it immediately. And essentially, I read it in the ESV, but he's saying, hold your peace. He'll get his. And it says that Absalom hated Amnon with an overwhelming Hatred. This is David's family. Verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he, would, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. So we have assault, sexual sin, Rape, devastation, desolation, hatred, and now murder. And now murder. David's angry about what happened to his daughter, but there's no record of him going to console her. Now, I'm not, I don't want to speak where the Bible doesn't speak, but the Bible's silent on this, and so we have no record of him going and saying, hey, Amnon, I mean, not even a rebuke. It says he was angry. But as far as we can tell, on this very severe matter... David did nothing. Oh, he was angry. But it was swept under the rub. So Absalom takes matters into his own hands. The sheep shear, that was an annual festival. You know, they would shear the sheep and they would, they would roast some and they would have a big party. And so he's inviting his father to come to the thing. Presumably, Absalom's in charge of the sheep for the kingdom. Hey, dad, why don't you come to this? It's going to be a big thing. I don't want to be a burden to you. And it says Absalom pressed him. He pressed him. 
And he said, okay, well, what about Amnon? And for a minute, David goes, why Amnon? And it says, but he pressed him. He invited all the brothers. Oh, just, well, the king can't be there. Let's have the, you know, the crown prince and all the other, all my brothers. Let's have them all there. And he pressed him. And so David relents. I think David suspected something. But again, he does nothing. And then the words that Absalom says to his servants, he says, oh, when his heart is merry with wine, and I'll say, strike him, then rise up. He's saying, kill my brother. Murder the crown prince. And he uses words that are familiar. Be strong and courageous. Be valiant. What is this? Joshua chapter 1? When God's telling Joshua to take the land in God's name, he's saying, "Be, be strong and courageous and commit a murder for this man that I hate. So they do it. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine being one of the other brothers? I don't know how many total there were. There was at least 10, maybe 15 brothers of all, you know, David's various wives. And all of a sudden, they see the two that we presume are respected the most, the oldest, and Absalom was the third. We think number two may have died in battle, but it's, it's one and two, and two commands his servants to kill him in cold blood. And they flee, and they flee. Verse 30, while they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom was, or has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon alone is dead. And in the rest of the chapter, you can read it on your own. uh, We see Absalom flees. He goes into exile. He runs to a Gentile nation, specifically to the king of Geshur, who is actually his maternal grandfather. So he commits a murder and then runs to grandpa. News comes back to David. And as typical fashion, we take whatever news there is and we exaggerate it and it becomes fake news, right? You know, someone dies, everyone died. No, no, just one died, you know, or the car was going 110 miles an hour. No, it just had that stupid roundabout in its way on the way to <laughs> Traverse City. Did I, say, I don't know why I said that. Sorry, it's a heavy topic. I don't know if Manistee knows about that, but roundabouts, not sure. Vicky loves them, though. Um, but it's interesting. This Jonadab character, I'm tired of him, and I've only heard his name twice. Jonadab is there when Amnon is lusting after his sister and hatches, or hatches this plot of rape and incest and assault. But then somehow he's in on the plot with Absalom, too, because when David tears his clothes and he's laying on the ground, he's in there quick to go, oh, no, 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 it's not all of them. It's just Amnon. And you know, I told you this would happen after the rape. He's one of those people that likes to play both sides. You know these people? They're always in your ear. Did you hear what those people said about you? 
No, 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 no. No, this isn't gospel. I'm just saying, da, 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 right? And then this person gets all ticked and go, hey, bro, you know, that guy, he said some horrible things. I don't know why. I don't know who told him. And you go over there. I, if you're that guy, would you just stop? <laughs> because you're the devil. Jonadab in here is the devil. It says about him he's crafty. And so if this is a play and this isn't literature and it's not, that's who he's playing, right? He's the one whispering in everybody's ear. He's always stirring the pot. I'm sure there's a Lord of the Rings reference in there someplace. But the fact of the matter is, is all of this is real. It's not just a story. There was a real beautiful girl named Tamar that was objectified and violated and assaulted and it was rape and it was incest. And the only thing we know about her life is she lived a desolated woman. There's no record of her ever marrying. All of that possibility and potential destroyed by a predator. Now, I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but if statistics are true, if you're listening, watching, here in Buckley, Manistee, the numbers vary between one of every five and one of every six Women or girls in this room have either been sexually abused, raped, or an attempt. For men, those numbers are climbing. It's between 1 in 16 or 1 in 10. Sexually abused or raped or attempted. Now, you might sit here and say, well, John, that's not me. What does this have to do with me? Well, I would say, what about the little brothel in the neighborhood of your mind that you visit? You see, all of us are victims and all of us are perpetrators. Because even if it's not sexual sin, when our lying and our hatred For that political party, for that race, for those people, Scripture says you're no different than Absalom who hated his own brother with a very great hatred. Sin is sin is sin. When we take what's not ours, when we don't live life on God's terms, and what we're seeing is the words of God through Nathan the prophet come true. So if you haven't been here, let me just fill it in for you. In chapter 11, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he murdered someone who was as close as a brother to cover it up. Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, one of his mighty men, devoted to him, devoted to the king. When he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he called him back from war to try to get him to sleep with his wife, but he wouldn't because he was such a valiant man. He said, if my buddies are in the field, I'm not going to go be with my wife. And what did they try to do? Get him drunk. But even when they got him drunk, he refused to go into Bathsheba. So David saw nothing else to do but to have him killed. You start to see the parallels yet? And when Nathan, the prophet, came and confronted him in chapter 12, he said to him, Here's, here was the hope in that chapter, <laughs> I'm not going to have you killed because... Back in the day, that was the punishment for such a crime, was death. Because you're the king, because I made a promise that from you would be the future king, I'm going to treat you like a son. I'm not going to, he says, your son has been taken, or your sin has been taken from you. However, David, the sword will never leave your house because of your sin. He said there'll be consequences. 
And he not only said that, he said, evil will raise up against you from your own household. That's why this message is called the sins of the father. You say, well, David didn't do anything. In the- yeah, exactly. He did nothing. He did nothing. And we could speculate all day long about what could he have done. I, I have a feeling why David did nothing. Because the sin of adultery and murder, he was guilty and everyone knew it. So he felt like he was powerless to do anything about it. So he did nothing. And there's a sermon in there about why so many men, so many of us men feel we're powerless. We feel like we've gone too far and it's too late. We're fed up. We feel guilty and we feel shame. So we do nothing. We do nothing. So what does this teach us? If that Romans passage is true, what can we learn from this? Well, I think the overarching thing it teaches us is that the curse of sin is devastating. The curse of sin is devastating. There are consequences to sin and it goes beyond you. That's why no sin is private. No sin is just, you know, just me and me alone. No one else saw that. Or it's not just me and her or me and him. It's, oh, that's just a private thing. Sweep, sweep, sweep. No sin is private. All sin is devastating. And there's a curse that comes with sin. And the curse is devastating. That's what David is learning. That's what we're seeing in his life. So if we go back to chapter 11... The sin of adultery, the sin of murder, it's like David dropped two atomic bombs on his own life and on his family and all Israel. Now, the reason I use that, I used to be a history teacher, so just go with me with the illustration for an example. The United States dropped the first atomic bomb in warfare on Hiroshima, and then about a week later on Nagasaki to end World War II, right? That much is true, we know this. Now, I'm not interested in debating the rightness or the wrongness of that action. I'm just using the illustration of the bomb. Okay, because there's always someone that says, well, they started it, Pearl Harbor, the whole thing, da-da-da-da-da, and we could get into all of those things, right? But the fact of the matter is, when that bomb dropped on Hiroshima, hundreds of thousands of people died. They were vaporized, gone. In an instant, a city was leveled. You've seen the pictures. If you stay up late like me and watch World War II documentaries, they're getting better and better, the documentaries, right? So devastated a city, and then a week later did the same thing on Nagasaki. But the devastation didn't end there because we know that thousands more died in the weeks and months and years after. Decades later, people were still dying from the cancers and the radiation from the fallout. So that one act had far-reaching effects is what I'm saying. But it went beyond that. The devastation wasn't just in those instances in those locations. Because if you know anything about the geopolitics of our world... The dropping of the atomic bombs effectively kicked off the Cold War between the United States and the communist bloc. Why? Because Russia said, wait a minute, I thought we were the biggest dog. We don't have one of those toys. I want one. And so then the arms race kicks off, and then the fight for you know, finding nations to be a buffer between the communists and the capitalists. You could say that when Hiroshima contained the seeds for the Korean War... And as the dominoes continued to fall with the curse of the consequences of that horrible moment, Vietnam and 50,000 lives in the Bay of Pigs and so forth and so on. Are you with me? So it's not just murder. It's not just sexual sin. It's not just rape. It's our lying. It's our greed. It's our cutting down. It's our coveting. It's our disrespect and dishonoring. The curse of sin devastates. 
And we see it, not just in chapter 13. You're going to find that through the rest of David's life, there's this downward spiral. And this is a biblical principle. In Exodus chapter 20, when God first gave us the law, this is what he warned us of. He said, in Exodus 20 verse 5, he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, anytime I sin, I'm showing hatred towards God because I'm showing hatred towards his law. And so what we can learn is the sins of the father, and you've heard these things, the sins of the father laid on the son, the sins of the father visited upon the children. It comes from right here. I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Meaning that the sin of a parent can have an impact to his children and his children's children and his children's children's children. You've heard the the, you know, the stats about the son of an alcoholic. Well, what about the grandchildren of alcoholics? So the great-grandchildren of, the, of an alcoholic. And I'm not picking on alcoholism. I'm just saying that's one of many things. Any addiction, any vice. You say, oh, no, that's just mine. Or we look at that, and it feels hopeless, doesn't it? Because I'm going to tell you, I'm not perfect, and neither is my wife. In one generation, I've already looked at my kids, and I'm like, hey, y'all are going to end up in therapy. All right, I'm sorry. I did the best I could with the tools that I had. I, you know, it's, I got it from, I don't know, great-grandpa. I didn't even know him. You know? It's saying to us that the curse of sin is devastating. It impacts others. Are you listening? That's what it's teaching us. And I, I don't know, you could read that verse and say, man, God seems petty. Man, he see, that's, that doesn't seem fair. Why does it have to impact the kids? Well, it's not just the kids. It's the people at work. It's your friends, your, your former friends, the people you went to school with. The people. It, it, there's, there's degrees of the ripple effect of our choices. One degree, two degree. And right here it says up to the fourth degree is the curse. I don't know about you, but I'm done being taught. I need some encouragement. Could you use a little encouragement? Would you like some encouragement and hope? This message has gone long enough. It's time to get to the hope. In fact, just a little audience participation. You can yell at me right now. Man, Steve Buckley, I just wanted to just say, where's the hope, John? John? I'm so glad you asked. It's in the next verse. Look at this. But there it is. There it is. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my command. Thousands of what? A thousand generations. See, I pride myself on being an optimist, but I can just see all the faults and all the bad and, oh, nothing's good and nothing ever changes. And I've I've screwed up so much. Why did I respond that way to my kid? Why did I respond that way to my wife? Why did I, why am I in this season? All of that stuff. Well, it says that that has a ripple effect to three or four generations, but there's hope to break the cycle. And it's right there in the promise. And the cycle is, but if I will choose to love him, if I will choose to do my level best to obey him, to follow him, There's an impact to a thousand generations. Which one's more, the ripple of three to four or a tidal wave that hits a thousand generations? There's a verse. I didn't make it up. God said it. Must be true. 
So if you've been sitting here saying, I've already screwed up as a parent. Why did I come this weekend to be beat down? Don't be beat down. There's hope. I messed up the first marriage, messed up the second. Don't be beat down. There's hope. I've already messed up. I'm a hopeless addict. Don't be beat down. There's hope. You see, the enemy is like Jonadab. He wants to play and stir the pot and get you to feel all that shame and live a desolated life. But that's not God. God is a God that says, you know what? If you hate me, you're going to impact through your sin three and four generations. But if you'll love me, you can break the cycle and there's hope. And it's a far more reaching than the impact of your sin. The tidal wave will outpace the ripples. No, you can't change the consequences. You can't change the past, but you can change now what you choose and going forward what it looks like. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I just wonder if David would have stopped and said, you know what? I'm supposed to keep justice. I don't know why God showed me grace, but I have to deal with the sin of my son Amnon. And if he would have intervened, if he would have chosen to love God by upholding justice and obeying his commands, maybe the murder wouldn't have happened. Because what you're going to see is David's kingdom and the kingdoms that come after this complete devastation, three and four generations. But I also know that David loved God. He did the best, I think, I guess, the tools that he had. God kept his promise to him. See, there's hope for us. There's hope. And the hope is that Jesus breaks the curse of sin. You know, it says in Galatians, or Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. This is what it says about the son of David, Jesus Christ. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's just as powerful as the Exodus thing. It says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So all of that stuff about, you know, uh, uh, that God lays the iniquity of the fathers on the children to a third and fourth generation. That's the curse of the law. How does he possibly show steadfast love to thousands? Right here. Right here. Jesus breaks the curse of sin. Jesus breaks the curse of sin. So let's land this plane. Those of you that have been triggered this morning because of what was done to you, maybe it was abuse, maybe it was something like this, maybe it was something different. You were betrayed, you were hurt, you were abandoned, you were left, you were lied about, you were cheated, you were stolen from, you weren't appreciated. Whatever it is that you've been carrying around, you don't have to live a a desolated life. It's not over. Jesus breaks the curse of sin. What that means is you take that shame and you can take that pain, you can take the trauma, you can take the abuse, and you can nail it to Jesus' flesh, through his flesh and into the wood of that tree. Some of us love to hold on to the desolation. We love to hold on to the hurt. It becomes our identity. Don't do it. Don't live there. Give it to Jesus. That's why he died. He died to take the pain. He died to take your shame. He died to take your hurt. It doesn't make it go away. There's still a ripple of consequences. But wouldn't it be better if we were to believe what he said about us and jump and surf on that tidal wave of steadfast love? He can do that. If you're listening today and you've been a perpetrator, I know I have. Maybe not this way. The scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all been predator. We've all been prey. We've all been victims. We've all been the perp. 
The cross is for you too. Jesus breaks the curse of sin. So you take your sin. You don't have to hate. You nail it to his flesh into the wood of that cross. Say, we take that there. You hang it there. See, it wasn't Romans who hung Jesus on a tree. It wasn't evil religious people that nailed him. We did. I did. You did. And if you believe that it was only for the victim and not the perpetrator, you don't understand the gospel. It's for all of us because all of us have been both. But thanks be to God that he took the curse because, as the scripture says, cursed is the one who's hung on a tree. And Jesus was hung on a tree on Calvary for the Tamars and the Amnons, for the Absaloms and the Davids, and for John, and for you. I believe that with all my heart. Jesus did what David was powerless to do. Jesus did what David was powerless to do, to break the curse of sin. So there's hope. You can break the cycle. If you're not a Christian, give your life to Jesus. If you are a Christian, but you've been living with shame, choose to give it to Jesus. If you're a Christian and you've been living under the power of sin, still feeling terrible, still having an impotent life, I could never speak, I could never share, I could never serve, I could never invite because, oh, no, not me, I'm the worst. You know, I'm done listening to that excuse. I'm done listening to that excuse. And it's usually a man who says, oh, you know, I'd, I'd lead a fight club, but I'm so unworthy, right? I'm like, you're right. I almost said a word I shouldn't say. <laughs> of course you're unworthy. But you're not worthy to receive his love. And so when we're like, oh, you know, I've just messed up too much. It's too late for me. You don't believe the gospel. You don't believe the cross was enough. You're a heretic. You believe it's Jesus plus something else. Have fun with that. As for me, I choose to believe the simple gospel that changes lives and breaks the curse of sin. You know, there was a guy named Zach once. He was a horrible guy. He was a liar. He was a cheat. He was a thief. He was rich, too. What's worse than that? He worked for the IRS. And he stole from people, and he patted his wallet, and he thought he was kind of a big deal, even though he was really, really short. And then one day, this guy named Zach, Eus, met Jesus, and his life was changed. And Jesus broke the power of the curse of sin in his life. And this guy, Zach, Eus, stood up in front of everyone and said, today, this day, half of everything I own, I give to the poor. And everyone that I've stolen, I've cheated. I'll pay you back four times what I've taken. That's a life changed. I was thinking about that. Zacchaeus probably broke his entire bank account. He may have had to liquidate assets to get that done. But I'll tell you this. He broke the cycle of the consequences of his sin that impacted his children and his children's children and his children's children. And he started a tidal wave of blessing. You know how I know that's true? I'm telling the story 2,000 years later. So there's your hope and you're welcome. When we love, when we obey, when we believe in the power of the cross, the blessing for us, for our children, for our children's children, for the generations that come after us as God tarries, as Jesus tarries, right? Right? That's a real thing. That's a real thing. 
Sin is no match for the sacrifice of the son. If you have one of these, we're going to close this weekend here and in Manistee by taking the Lord's Supper. Now, just that by way of instruction, a couple of things. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to sit this one out. But we also invite you to become one. And you can become one by simply choosing to place your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ. You can do it right now. You're private. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. For those of us who are Christians, we're instructed by Scripture not to take communion in an unworthy manner. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads in this moment. And if there's sin or shame, if there's unforgiveness or pain, anything, whatever it is, that might be between you and God or you and your brother, in this moment is the perfect opportunity to just spend some time giving it to Jesus, nailing it to the cross. And now I invite you, there's a little, these things are weird. But the fact that we have to use them as a consequence of sin and disease. So if you just take off that top film and get the wafer out. I want you to break it. Scripture says on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And he invited his followers to take and eat it as we remember him and what he did on the cross. And then afterward, he took the cup and he said... This cup is the new covenant of my blood, blood that is shed for you. And as often as you drink it, you should remember me. And so when we drink the cup, it's an act of faith, believing what Christ did on the cross, believing that whether my life is overwhelmed by being a victim, or overwhelmed because I've been a perpetrator, that the blood was shed for both, and that Christ's sacrifice was enough. And so the son of David said that we should take the cup as we remember him to the king. I've asked... David and Manistee and Vicky to sing the benediction for us because I want no one to leave here hopeless. I want us to leave hopeful. I want no one to leave under a cloud of shame, but believing by faith that Jesus is a truer and better king than David.
and that the blessing of our lives can go on, as the word says, for a thousand generations. So just stay seated, if you would, and let this prayer wash over you as a blessing.
people said, amen. If you need to take a moment and just sit, you can do that. Um, Thank you so much for coming out. We love you. Take care and we'll see you next week.